everybody and welcome to another one in our long-running series of financial well-being podcasts. As ever, in recent weeks and indeed months, we've been doing these in a socially distanced way. So instead of meeting in a room together, we all gather on our laptops in our own different houses. My name is David Lloyd and joining me today is Chris Budd. Good morning. And Tom Morris. Good morning. How are you all? Is that our intros done? Yeah, no, 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 no. no. I thought it. we might try and thought we might try up the professionalism a little bit, Tommy. What do you think? <laughs> or I, I, I think that that long went. <laughs> we, we've done that. We've done the professionalism. Now let's have the meaningless chat, Chris. What's bothering you? <laughs> well, do you know what, David? This week I did something that is going to be the last time in my entire life that I do it. I reckon I bought a new cricket bat. And I only play 20 over games three or four times a year, so I can't imagine I'm ever going to need another one. But it is a bit of a beaut, I have to say. And I play with it on Wednesday. And the first ball that was delivered to me, sent for four. Well, this nice is one. really important that you have a good bat because you're not doing the running like you used to do. So you need to make sure it reaches the boundary. I, I, my cricket bat, which I've now had for probably about 10 years, but it doesn't get a lot of use, I have to say, about, given to me by a professional cricketer who'd been given a whole selection of bats by his sponsor. And this was one that he just didn't take it. It's the best bat I've ever had. It's far too good for me. There's a lot more runs in it than I'm ever going to score. But yeah, but I'm still going. But I know exactly what you mean, Chris. How are you doing, Tomo? Do you know what? I'm all right, actually. Yeah, on the sport theme, um, we're recording this in, this in the summer, so this is probably going to be going out in the middle of the winter. So, you know, this is the way we try and uh, get ahead of time. But I had my best round of golf yesterday all summer. I was delighted. I scored, those of you who know golf, I scored 39 on Stapleford. Oh, so, uh, yeah, Chris. That's yeah. not your handicap cut, that is. Yeah. It is. It, it got, I, I got one of these electronic ones because I'm, I'm not a member of it, of course. I just pay wherever I can get around in. And it cut me last night. So I'm quite chuffed. Yeah. Yeah. Beat the old man four and three as well. So yeah. Good that's, times. Good. that's what really matters. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Loser by the round. So keep us going. Yeah. Right. So what's on today's podcast, Chris? Today we have an interview with a lovely American lady called Kate Holmes, who has been a financial advisor, but now trains financial advisors and how to give our type of advice, financial well-being and financial planning advice. So she's got loads of really good tips for people uh, about their money. Great. Looking forward to our insight. But before we do, it's time for our two regular features. And we'll start uh, with the first of those two, which is Beige's Behavioural Biases. So this is where an old friend of the podcast, behavioural finance expert Neil Beige, gives us his one-minute introduction of a different behavioural bias that affects how we make decisions about money. And this week... Neil is going to tell us about anchoring. When people are trying to make a decision, they often use an anchor or a focal point as a good place to start. Unfortunately, people have a tendency to rely too heavily on the first piece of information they see, the anchor, which can have a big impact on the decisions they end up taking. There was a great experiment from New York that proves the power of anchoring with a bit of framing thrown in for good measure. So New York cabs that carried a traditional tip option where riders would enter their tip amount found that on average their tip level was 9%. 
Now, they knew they wanted to increase this level, so in experimental cabs, they added in a new machine that anchored people to a different set of numbers. They pre-programmed tip amounts in, starting with the highest going down to the lowest, so 30%, 25%, 20%, and then other. So what did they find? Well, they found a big difference in the outcome, a 13% difference to be exact. Tips jumped to an average of 22%. Now, just to put that into context, on a $20 cab ride, the tip went from $1.80 to $4.40. Now, on those numbers and assuming 30 cab customers a day, it meant that drivers' tips increased by around $78 a day just by changing the way that the information was presented, which can have a significant impact on the outcome. Anchoring is really powerful, and we should be aware of how anchored we are to the information we absorb as we go through our daily lives. Wow, that's quite significant, isn't it? About how if you if you let people choose themselves, they may not necessarily be as generous as, as if you just lead them in a certain direction. Yeah, this is it's used all the time in advertising and marketing to get you to spend more money than you might like to. I mean, there's uh, you know, two for one offers. And uh, I'm not suggesting this happens all the time. But I suspect on occasion, you what you do is you increase the price by 50% and then say the third one free, you know, three for the price of two sort of stuff. So there's loads of different ways that, that this is used to get us to spend more money than we need. And being aware of it, and particularly being aware of uh, how susceptible you personally are to it, can make a big difference to how you spend money on your happiness. Can I just think about a financial planning example or a couple that come to mind? Is the business owner who's once been told his business is worth X. It might not be reality, but they anchor themselves to that that price that they they've told the value the business might be. It's very difficult for them to get away from that. The other one is an estate agent overinflating the house, the value of your house because they want your business. And again, you then get very wedded to that's what the house is worth and I'm not willing to shift on it. Just two examples that I can think of where anchoring and positioning yourself for a particular value means that you're unable to really shift yourself. There's another example as well, which is uh, about, and it comes back to comparison. That, that I'm going to quote Roosevelt again because I think it's such a great quote, the comparison is a thief of joy. And there's one study which offered people a choice of two salaries. Salary one was 50,000. Oh, but by the way, everybody else you know is earning 200,000. Or you can have a salary of 30,000. Oh, but by the way, everybody else you know is earning 20,000. And the vast majority of people chose the lower salary because it was anchored against a lower figure. So it's a fascinating subject, anchoring, and it's used all the time in uh, in money. We, and I've said in previous podcasts, we're working closely with Neil has got a, an app out there called the uh, Beam app. You can get it on, on Apple, I believe, at the moment. Android. Could, you spell, could you spell that for us, Tom? B-E-A-M. So you go on your Apple store, and I believe it's coming to Android. Type in Beam, and you will get... It says Beam Self-Awareness is the one. And you go in there, and you just could do all these tests. Um, gamified, quite fun. You don't even realize your, that what, what areas they're trying to test and it will come out and it will look at something like anchoring, how much you um receptive to anchoring. And then we use use this data and it links straight to something we got at Ovation. We talk to clients about this and we let them understand where they're positioned are. And it can be really eye-opening 
and help them with some of the decisions they've made in the past and 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 the way that they make decisions so there you go i just thought i'd, I'd mention that that is going on and go and check out that app Right. Thank you very much. But don't go away, Tomo, because we're going to come back to you in a minute because it's time for our next feature, Tight Ass Tomo. But I'm going to kick off this time with a way that you can save yourself a substantial amount of money, indeed several thousand pounds. For some time now, it's always been my dream to have a hot tub. I've always thought, oh, that'd be nice. Be nice to be out in the garden, you know, in the sunny weather or perhaps even when it's a bit cold, looking up at the stars, sitting in a hot tub. You know, a decent hot tub's going to cost you five, six thousand pounds. And at the moment, I didn't really feel that I could justify spending that amount of money. So, guess what, listeners? I've built my own. And uh, you can go on my Twitter, uh, Dave underscore Backwell, and see a photograph of it. I'm rather proud of it. And my partner, Gail, and I have used it once, and it was absolutely marvelous. Now, it's not a hot tub with disco music and bells and all of that, it's basically an outdoor bath. <laughs> Uh, that you fill from a hose pipe that comes out of the kitchen window, and then you sit in it. But because of the insulation, it stayed warm for about three hours. In fact, it was so warm, we had to get out at one point and put a bit of cold water into it because it wouldn't go cold. But that cost me, uh, the, the, the plastic drinking trough was free, the polystyrene was free, that was given to me. Uh, I used some old bits of fence panelling where I had to go and buy some wood, some timber framing, a little bit of decking for the top. I reckon it cost me 150 quid tops. I'm rather nervous at asking this question, David, but where do the bubbles come from? Uh, there are no bubbles unless you make your own. <laughs> Why did I know? Why did I know you were going to go there? Yeah. Sorry, and, listeners. And then, so basically, you fill it up and then you drain it away. Now, you may say, well, that's a hell of a waste of water, uh, which, which if that was all you did with it, it would be. But in fact, I am in the process of getting myself a submersible pump so that I can put that into the hot tub, pump the water out into a big uh, tub. Uh, and then use that to water my garden. I love that. So there you are. Save yourself a load of money by building your own hot tub. <laughs> or employ you to do it. Uh, oh, actually, that wouldn't be a bad idea because I could do it with the money at the moment. <laughs> Chris, what have you got for us? Uh, mine's far more serious than, than that brilliant one, David. If anybody's writing a will, they will have to make a decision about an executor. The executor of the will is the person who enacts the will when the time comes. And my tip is get a friend or family member to be the executor. Do not let the solicitor or particularly the bank appoint themselves as executor, which quite often happens. Bank, some banks charge up to 3% of an estate value for acting as a, an executor. Hugely expensive and I'm literally 10 times more than you would otherwise need to pay. So if you get a, a friend to do it, then they can, of course, appoint a solicitor to give them the advice later and to give them the legal advice. But your cost will be massively low. And when, when somebody is uh, dealing with somebody's estate, the last thing they want to be doing is having arguments about who's executives because it's obviously a difficult time. So, yeah, when you appoint your executor, make sure it's a trusted family or friend. Having been executor on both my parents' wills, it's actually not that complicated a process. So, so I, I, I've had a uh, similar experience recently, unfortunately, where some clients at Ovation have passed away and the family executor and is employing as alongside a really well-qualified probate solicitor to help and guide them it's worked really well and this this combination of of experts on our side on the probate side and the executor in the middle and ultimately a lot of the things that somebody can do 
at a lower cost. They can do. But when you need the expertise, bring them in. And it means that you are paying for exactly what you need. So it's work. Well, I've seen it work. And I completely agree with you and Chris on that one. So yeah, I'm with you all the way. Anyway, you want to know yes, my tip? Okay, so let's never let it be said that, that we don't cover lots of interesting different topics on this podcast. So we've had build your own hot tub. We've had appointed decent and cheap executor. But now let's go back to the titan of tightness himself for this week's Titus Tomo tip. Well, this one is a little bit niche and might be one that for our listeners or it might be one for you to speak to somebody who is in this bracket. So it's going to be for those who are quite of the older generation, 70 plus. Uh, but I don't know if, if you probably won't remember it, but I do. Uh, Steve Webb was the pensions minister in the Tory Lib Dem coalition from 2010-2015 and it was actually really quite a competent one in my humble opinion compared to what has gone before and after but we'll leave it there um but he no but but when he left uh when he left office in 2015 he he moved into the pension industry and he's been given great insight since to his credit and he's noticed that there is this gap for a lot of married women and their state pensions. So there are a lot of married women, sort of that 70 plus, who are not necessarily receiving the amount they should due to some computer glitches, not properly recording what they should be entitled to. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail here because it is a bit, bit in depth, but he is working for a company that's got a fantastic particular calculator on this and all the details. So it's going to be in the show notes. So here you go. It's quite a long web address. It is LCP uk.com forward slash is your state pension being underpaid and some great stuff there are calculate to see whether you should be getting some more and also how to claim it if you should be so it'd be in the show notes but for some people this could could be a you know quite a bit of extra pension income that they're entitled to that for whatever reason is not being given to them as far so there you go well done steve webb thank you for that chris uh, why didn't you bring us on to today's main event We're going to have a listen to my chat with Kate Holmes. Kate has her own podcast called the Innovating Advice Podcast. As we'll hear, she lives in Las Vegas, which is pretty cool. And uh, she's an advocate for financial planning and helps advisors in America to deliver financial planning rather than financial advice. In other words, to talk about our sort of stuff rather than just talk about products. So let's have a listen to my chat with Kate Holmes. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, it is awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. And where do we find you in America? I am in Las Vegas, Nevada, Sin City. Uh, you really? Do you live in Las Vegas? I do, yes. Wow, do you have lots of clients to talk financial advice to there? <laughs> It's actually a really wonderful place to live. It's great because for a lot of reasons, but one of them is everyone comes to Vegas from all over the world. So we lived in Denver for five years and we hardly saw anybody there. It's a great city. I love Denver. But being in Vegas, people come either for holiday or for conferences or on a world tour just to check it off the list. So it's fun to get to see people. But you know, when most people think of Vegas, they just think of the Strip. 
And in reality, that is honestly one single street in what is actually a massive city. We've got about 2.3 million people here and surrounded by mountains. It's a super athletic city, tons of hiking, biking. It's, it's great. So Las Vegas isn't just about the gambling then? It's not just about the gambling. The strip is pretty much about the gambling, yeah, but yeah, I'm getting and that, that also makes it fun to do a little, like you can feel like you're on a mini getaway, even being at home. So the strip is about 15 minutes from us. So all the great shows that come to town, we've got sports here now, all the great you know concerts and theater. So it's a good variety. So, so I'm going to come back to that in a second, but we should actually introduce you first of all. Certainly. So I am a CFP professional, but I'm no longer practicing. I've been in the industry or profession, and I do intentionally use two different terms for that for 15 years now and spent the first 10 years in an investment advisory firm. And I was sort of like a chief operating officer. So I saw every single aspect of it. And I knew exactly what we charged clients. I knew exactly the service we provided. And a lot of what I specialized in, just because I loved doing it, was going into companies and talking with employees. And it would be from your rank and file employees to your executives. So you'd get the entire depth and breadth of people and experiences. And I saw over and over again that it really wasn't about the investments. It's not about what interest rates are doing. It's not about what products you know people might or might not need. The real heart of it all was actually helping people figure out what they wanted in their life. And I've had thousands of these conversations and I pretty quickly realized I met with a lot of people, again, in every socioeconomic status that were hitting their late 50s and early 60s and knew that they wanted to retire, but they weren't retiring to anything. They just knew they didn't like their job, potentially with their grown kids, they no longer liked their spouse, maybe they didn't like where they lived. So it just became this whole, like everyone was quote unquote doing everything right. They checked all the boxes, you know, they had the job for 30 some odd years, but they just didn't seem fulfilled. And that kind of made me realize, I was like, the industry is so focused on investments and managing your investments. But then you talk to all these people that have been doing it right for these decades and they weren't happy. So I just kept seeing this disconnect here. And I realized it really is about first having those conversations around what do people want in their life? And Chris, you know, like most people don't know. Most financial advisors and financial planners don't know. Like it doesn't matter what your career is. We rarely stop to actually ask ourselves what makes us happy or to try different things because you're not going to know if you don't try. So that just kind of made me realize it was about those conversations. And so to emphasize that, I didn't want to manage assets and I've never sold a financial product and I really wanted to change the conversation and show people that what financial planning really is and what you know financial well-being really is, is about that inner search first and then using money as a tool second. Love it. So in those conversations then that you had with clients, what, what were the typical things that they concluded that they wanted to use their money for? What, what, was, what sort of, give us some examples of the things that you've come across. You know, a lot of it was just really interesting conversations with people around things that they hadn't even thought about in a really long time, or, you know, dreams that people have in the back of their heads that they 
don't always allow themselves to think. And again, this happened with people, whether they were sort of in an hourly position or in an executive role. And sometimes it would be things like, I talked to a woman, I was out in rural Iowa at this like manufacturing place doing these employee meetings. And this woman just made a comment about how she used to really love painting. So we just kind of started talking about that. And she said that, you know, she would really love to get back to painting and sell some of her paintings. And I went back and met with her again a year later and she had done it. And she said it was just from that conversation that she hadn't even allowed herself in such a long time to acknowledge her love of painting. And she had been out at farmer's markets and arts fairs actually selling her paintings. And it was so rewarding to see. And that's not something that, you know, you need a lot of money for. It's no. just tapping into what are those desires that people have. So uh, if I may just pick up on that, I'm, uh, there's something about that, that that intrigues me because there's you have this, this lady saying, I always love painting, but there was that extra step to say, and I therefore need to sell them. I, I wonder, I'm just, just quite interested whether that perhaps shows that we are automatically always thinking that there needs to be some validation for it. Well, I don't think that's where she was initially. And that's why, so we kind of, when I met with her again and we talked through the whole journey of the last year, when we had that first conversation, it was really just that she hadn't even acknowledged that she missed painting. Yeah. And so just saying that out loud, then she did get back to painting. And then I think she started to realize, you know, there's a, there's a sense of validation. I think when you produce anything, you know, especially kind of in an, in an arts world, that you can actually sell and then seeing that as a way of, you know, taking what you love and having some extra income from it that then if nothing else, it can just pay for the additional painting supplies. You know, even if it's a break even, it's that revenue stream that allows you to maybe explore more or use it to go to, you know, a conference to learn more or take another class. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, it, if you'll forgive me that this is a bit of a digression, that's just a subject I yeah. find really, really interesting because my brother, for example, is a photographer and I've got several friends who are artists and I write books, novels, etc. And so the idea that you've got to have an audience to validate what you do is one thing. But the idea of then having of being able to sell it for money is a second level of validation. And I, I certainly don't make any money out of my novels, that's for sure. But if I know that 500 people read them and I've got some good reviews on Amazon, that's enough, actually. You don't write novels for money, you know. Well, some people do, but very, very, very few. <laughs> so I just find that, that subject quite interesting, the relationship between money and creativity, you see? Yeah, well, I think it can go both ways. I mean, I actually got my degree in photography. So I've got that artistic background and... I realized I didn't even want to do it commercially or for money. And I always explain, I kind of broke up with photography. And, you know, I think the emotional connection that I had to it was like a relationship. And once I graduated, I realized we were just not meant to be together anymore. So I stopped <laughs> doing it. But I did think about continuing it just, you know, for pleasure. And I, I loved travel photography. And I've always loved traveling around the world. But for me, I realized that doing travel photography actually detracted from my experience in being present where I was. Mm. Yeah, I think we've I think we've seen that <laughs> seen that all around yes. the world, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, so look, uh, in your view, in your experience, what are the main blockages that you've seen in people to using wealth to be happier? I'd say the number one blockage is that people don't know what being happier actually looks like. 
they spend so much time sort of chasing a lot of the things. And I thought about probably 10 years ago, writing a book called um, Don't Buy That Car. And not for it to be a commercial success, but I just had this interesting like few months where I kept having all these conversations with people and clients and potential clients. And they had these dreams when we would dive into what did they really want their life to look like. And for a couple of them, they also wanted to buy a brand new car. And I kept trying to figure out how to navigate this conversation because they had these things that they knew would make them happy and great life goals, but they were somehow tied to this idea that they had to buy a brand new car, which if they went that way meant that they couldn't actually accomplish their life goals. And so I wanted to kind of dive in and, and do that research. I didn't end up doing it, but whether it's a car or a house or whatever it is, I was sort of fascinated with the psychology behind it of, you know, actually looking down and knowing, hey, these are the things that make me happy. But it's almost like this societal pressure of, but, you know, I have to own this brand new fancy car because that's the image I'm trying to give off or that's the, you know, profession that I'm in or the people that I'm surrounded by. And sort of watching that behavior of, you know, seeing people be pulled that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, and so when you, you, you now spend your time advising financial advice firms on how to give this type of financial planning um, and advice, what are the main tips you would give to those firms? And obviously our audience is the public, but I'm interested in how they would recognize a firm that would help them with their purpose as opposed to just talk investments to them. Well, the biggest thing that I do and that I'm passionate about is, and the reason I actually, why I decided to work with other advisors and financial planners instead of going back to working with clients is because in order to actually have these conversations, financial advisors and financial planners need to first do that work themselves. And, you know, a lot of people that have worked with an advisor or, you know, maybe no one in their family know that all over the world, it is still very much about products and investments. And I've talked with lots of people that have, you know, come into the industry and realized, oh, actually, I thought I was going to be helping people, but I have this quota to meet of selling financial products. And they try to, you know, fit the problem into this predefined solution of a financial product. And so in order for them to have these more meaningful conversations with clients, advisors need to take a step back and say, you know, am I on the career path that's really making me happy? Am I living the life that makes me happy? You know, and I've gone through this myself and that's, you know, so I'm not doing it from a, hey, I'm just speaking it. You know, I was living what many people would consider, you know, very ideal American life. My ex and I lived in a you know beautiful home in suburban Seattle and his two kids lived with us. And I was a principal in an investment advisory firm and none of it felt right to me. And I grappled with that for years because I was like, you know, we're taught gratitude and be thankful for what you have. And I kept doing these practices and I was like, but there's something missing in that. You know, it is good to be thankful for what you have, but it's also really important to acknowledge if what you have is not what you actually want. But the, uh, the trouble is knowing what you actually want. Yes, that is the trouble. And sometimes, you know, so for me in that situation, and again, it's not the first time I've been on this roller coaster a few times where I haven't known exactly what I did want, but I knew that what my life was in that time was what I didn't want. 
And um, were there characteristics of that that you could identify and then apply, therefore, to other things that you don't go off into something else that you don't want? Well, I think it's, you know, I, I did this again just last year. I worked for a global organization, and in many ways, it was the absolute perfect job for me. I got to travel all over the world and work with amazing people. And, you know, I kept telling myself when I was in these amazing situations, I was like, how lucky am I? Like, this is absolutely amazing. But ultimately, I wasn't doing the exact work that I was most passionate about. And again, I kept going back to that gratitude thing, be thankful for what I have. But it just kept gnawing at me. And I spent like a year trying to say, well, what do I want? What does that look like? And I knew that for me, and I know, you know, not everyone has this ability. And, you know, I think it's from being a financial planner. From my very first job at Target, I have always been you know, so big on spending so much less than I make, you know, I've never let lifestyle creep come in as I've earned more money. So I've always been a big saver, which allows me these opportunities of, you know, last year, I was like, I don't know what it is that's next. And so I, I quit that job with no idea what was next. And I knew that, you know, as long as I stayed there, I wasn't going to have the, you know, mental or emotional capacity to figure it out. And so I decided I was like, I'm taking at least the rest of 2019 off. And I focused on eating well and exercising and, you know, reading books and just getting back to what's most important in life. And that, that's the only way that I could have paused and retaken stock of what matters because we all just spend so much time, go, go, go. And sometimes the very best thing you can do is actually stop and do nothing for a while. And do you know what what a, what a very pertinent time it is to be saying that right at the moment as we're talking. Yes. I don't know what it's like where you are, but we're just emerging over here out of lockdown from COVID. And a lot of conversations I have with friends and, and through work, because I do like to ask a few personal questions of people. You know, the they old how are you has taken much deeper resonance <laughs> over yes. the last two months. And a lot of people are saying, actually, do you know what? I've quite enjoyed this moment to stop and reflect. Yep. And, and I hope a few people will, you know, make some life decisions from that about what well, actually does make me happy, et cetera. Uh, so I think maybe that's proof of your, of your point that, uh, that taking time out and just slowing down is, is, is every once in a while is good for you. Well, it is. And that's, you know, being a financial advisor during the global financial crisis, you know, I mean, I was on the phone for 14 to 16 hours a day, you know, with devastating conversations, people losing their house, losing their job, you know, lots of really tough stuff. But there were also a lot of really bright lights during that time. And I just loved the conversations I had with people that did lose their job. And it was really tough. But then we got into those conversations of, okay, that actually becomes a catalyst for saying, so that's gone. So now what do you want? And it's that forced time of reflection. And I was just reading an article uh, sort of a week or two ago around all of the businesses that were started during the Great Recession and, you know, how great of a time it actually is to start a business during a recession and that it, it does force people to take stock. And, you know, it, again, it's sad, the sort of devastating things that happen, but it really is a lot of opportunity that comes out of it. And once everyone can slow down and pause and, you know, a lot of people have those ideas inside of them, whether it's a hobby they want to take up or, you know, meditation, or if it's a business they want to start or career change, you know, to kind of go, all right, well, now's the time to redirect and try something new. Mm. 
I'm interested in one aspect of, of what you're doing. You, you run this podcast, the Innovating Advice podcast, and it makes a real feature of it being global. So I'm just yeah. wondering, as you've spoken to different people around the world and, and many different countries you, you, you've covered, have you noticed any different attitudes to money around different parts of the world? There are. Yeah. And that's part of what has always made me fascinated by it. I had a woman on recently who has a, a very mixed racial background and, you know, a lot of Asian influence from both of her parents. And we're talking a lot about being culturally intelligent. And, you know, a lot of it was sort of around at a very high level differences between sort of Western and Eastern culture and the conversations that you have and how you approach things and what you talk about. And that's something that's always fascinated me because when I did start my business and the fact that I, you know, not managing assets, not selling products, everybody kept telling me that it would fail. And, you know, I kept explaining that it was so much more important to have these conversations and people kept saying, you know, nobody's ready for that. And I was like, but yes, they are. I think so many people are, they just don't have the opportunity for that yet. And now we're, you know, seven years later and there are thousands of advisors all over the world with nearly identical businesses. And so as I keep going to, you know, talk with people in all these countries, it's the same conversation over and over again of, you know, a lot of advisors saying, Hey, I'd like to start a business like that, but I don't think I would get any clients. I don't think, you know, my country or my culture is ready for that. And I think they are, you know, I think your listeners might hopefully be listening, kind of saying, I could use that conversation, you know, and, and working with an advisor that isn't just trying to sell a product or just manage my investments, like help me really figure out what do I want my life to look like? And then diving into the money and creating a plan to get there. Mm, yeah, I, I, amen to that. Um, a very quick story, if I may share with you. A, a few years ago, um, I posted, well, actually, I asked a friend of mine who's like five and a half thousand followers on Twitter, well-known in financial services. Um, I was looking for a financial advisor, but I don't have any money to invest. Um, yeah. So I said to him, could you post a tweet out and say, I've got a client, he's willing to pay a fee for financial planning, but he has no assets to invest. He got two people respond. That was all. Um, oh. One of them is the guy who is now my financial advisor, and the other one was one of my employees. <laughs> yeah. at, at Ovation Finance, the financial planning company. But that was it. Nobody's interested. So actually, in the UK, I would say we are still a long way, a long way away from people being able to find somebody who doesn't need assets to invest. But there is a particular strand in the UK which is coming up. I'd be interested if this is happening in, in the US. Uh, of what uh, goes under a number of different uh, names, but financial coach is probably the best one, possibly yep. money coach, where they help people to work out things like self-limiting beliefs, to understand their relationship with money. Fascinating area. Is that, is that big in the US? You know, it is. And it's something that I admit I've gone back and forth with. And I you know, have some thoughts around when I did start my business and I started explaining to people what I did, you know, you do your elevator pitch everywhere you go just to practice it. And I kept saying, I'm a certified financial planner. And the instant reaction was already, oh, I already have a planner or what stock should I invest in? Yeah. I was like, okay, that's, that's not working. And so I kept trying different ways of explaining it. And then everyone kept saying back to me, they're like, oh, you're like a financial coach. And so I was like, okay, that makes sense. Cause that's a lot of what I was doing. And then especially being in the US, there's this sort of organization called FinCon, and it's sort of where money and media meet. And so in the US, there are massive bloggers 
and you know a lot of them call themselves money coaches or financial coaches and my challenge with that a lot of them you know they're good people and they're doing good things but one they are not regulated or licensed in any way and yeah. so that was always a challenge for me because I was like, I, you know, I've gone through, I've got, you know, licenses, I'm a certified financial planner, I'm fully regulated, you know, I've got all this compliance stuff that I have to follow. And then you've got people over here that don't have any of that. And that, that's always kind of bothered me. But then the other thing that sort of bothers me, and I see this conversation regularly on social media, is financial advisors saying, you know, oh yeah, I'm happy to sort of partner with a financial coach because once clients get to me, you know, we don't talk about budgeting or any of that stuff. I assume they've already got that sorted. And that's just missing such a huge piece of the pie because everything that financial coaches or money coaches do, I absolutely believe financial advisors and financial planners should do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm just sorry. I'm just completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, and actually, one of the one of the if you if you want advice about the law, you go and see a lawyer, right? Yep. If you want advice about your business accounts, you go to an accountant. If you want advice about your personal finance, you can go to a wealth manager, financial advisor, financial planner, financial coach, money coach, etc. Investment manager, stockbroker. There, are, we don't have one name to cover it all, and I think that's a real problem for the public. So let me ask you this question then. Perhaps we'll just finish with this thought. If somebody's listening to this podcast and they wanted to engage the sort of financial advisor that we're talking about, who understands yep. well-being, who understands money and purpose, and it's not just about investments, what should they be looking for? Well, I've always recommended, and even when I had prospects, I would always recommend that they talk to at least three people and ideally sort of three diverse people because money is an incredibly intimate thing to be talking about. And you need to make sure that, you know, in the deepest part of your gut that you really feel good about who you are working with. So, you know, a lot of people will ask their friends or family, but that, that can be a good place to start, or it might not be a good place to start because they might be the more traditional product salespeople, or I call them asset gatherers, people just <laughs> collecting assets under management. So, you know, Google really is a good place to start and looking for people that talk about either life-centered financial planning or lifestyle planning. And you can see, you can learn a lot from people by what's on their website. You know, you can see, do they really talk about how they truly care about clients? What is their fee model? And I'm always wary. And this is one thing I always look at with financial services, no matter what business it is, if it's, I'm in a clothing store, if it's a website, if you don't say what your prices are, and I know there are a lot of thoughts around this in, in financial services, but my mom always taught me, if you can't see the price, it's too much. And so I'm just a fan of being transparent with what is your pricing? What does it look like? Even if it's in a range, that way you just understand. And then most advisors will do a free intro call. And like a lot of first impressions, you'll know pretty quickly whether that's going to be somebody that might be the right fit. So are the first questions around how much money do you make? How much do you have to invest? How much is currently invested? That's going to tell you that this isn't someone doing, you know, this kind of coaching style, well-being conversation versus if you get on a call and somebody genuinely asks you sort of deeper open-ended questions, you know, a lot of advisors will just blankly say, what are your goals? You know, and you're going to say, oh, I'm going to retire at 65 and yada, yada those are the more generic 
things that people are taught in sales and training. So just listen to your gut. That's the big thing. Have those conversations. Know that you're going to talk to a few people so that you also don't feel any pressure to, you know, give into a sales pitch or sign something now and take your time. That's a really good, a really good tip there. There's a, that's a real tell, isn't it? If I can bring us back to Las Vegas, <laughs> if you're part of the, uh, stretching an analogy, it was a really good tell how quickly the advisor that you speak to for the first time, how quickly they ask you how much you have to invest. That's yep. a real giveaway, isn't it? <laughs> yep, it is. So, so look, I would just like to, and this is, might be unfair on you, Kate, and, and, and you're welcome to duck the question, but I'm really curious to know what living in Las Vegas has told you about people's relationship with money. I mean, it is the capital of wasting money in the world, isn't it? (laughs) It is. Oh, it's endlessly fascinating. So I have thought for years about taking a camera and a microphone because you get people from all over the world that come here. And I would love to go down on the strip and find people and, you know, ask them how much credit card debt do you have? You know, how much money did you come here to spend? And if there's any way I can find them on both a Thursday and a Sunday, you know, how much did you come to spend? How much did you actually spend? I want to know if people work with a financial advisor or a financial planner, what their experience has been. Like I am endlessly fascinated with sort of the intersection of money and happiness of people that come on the strip. Oh, and that's so you know, isn't it? And like, I've known people that come that I know personally are, you know, in massive amounts of debt and they come and they go to the most expensive restaurants on the strip. And I'm just looking and I was like, huh, like it's, it's so interesting. And and did they set themselves a budget on the Thursday and on the Sunday, did they stick to it? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Kate, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Great stuff. And and I thought she made a very interesting point there about how you can find a financial advisor who will talk to you about your financial well-being and not just try and sell your products. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there is a real shift in financial advice in the UK away from just talking about investments. Because let's be honest, when you go to a financial advisor, what you're doing is you're saying, look, here's my investments. Here's my money. It scares me a bit. I don't really understand it because you look after it for me, please. And I'll be over there having fun with my kids and my family or what have you. And what financial advice traditionally does is it brings the client back in again so that we can show off our technical knowledge and talk about investments and pensions and tax. The one thing the client doesn't want to know about. So if you want to go to a financial advisor, we'll talk about your life and how your money can make you happier. In North, most advisors will give you a free initial meeting to get to know each other. It might be a telephone call or Zoom, what have you, but uh, you'll usually get, a, I don't know, half an hour or so just to get to know each other a little bit. In that time, does the advisor, the financial planner, do they talk about uh, how much money you've got to invest or do they talk about what your life's all about? And that will pretty quickly tell you which sort of advisor you're going to be talking to. Yeah, I, I, I listened to that interview and it was... There was so Neil Beige bias. There was confirmation bias all over the place. <laughs> her, her, her approach is what we're all about at Ovation. So naturally, I'm going to agree with what she said. But it's true. I truly believe that how on earth can we make a decision about our money unless we truly know about ourselves and where we're trying to head? And, not, and it's the cart before the horse, otherwise. And it really is. Really understand yourself. Make some plans around it. And then start actually moving money around if need be. You know, that, that's the point. 
just like to move away from that particular interview because it's i've just thought of a question actually based on what we're what we're hearing from increasingly now with the interviews that you do chris the very good interviews that you do i know you don't claim that you invented the phrase financial well-being oh, i do, do. <laughs> <laughs> all right you might claim it but we know no, you didn't, didn't. <laughs> no, no, I, I claim you i certainly... claim that i did but i'm quite happy yeah. to admit that i didn't yeah. but you certainly wrote a very good book about it and we've now done 69 podcasts on the on okay. the theme and, and having listened to that interview there do you feel that the message that your message in the book that other people are echoing is now moving more and more into the financial advisory world i would say slowly but surely david so the initiative for financial well-being that i set up the new institute that was founded at the beginning of this year that Tom is involved with. We've also got uh, loads of other people. It's got over, just over 200 members now. And that's absolutely amazing. That's from a standing start during a global pandemic. And they're all really good people who are interested in helping their clients to be happier. But there's, what, 28,000 financial advisors in the UK? <laughs> so, 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 yeah, something in the 20,000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it is getting through. What you're also finding, there are some companies who are going, this is the future, we've got to get behind it. So, for example, our first, uh, what we call partner member for the IFW is Aegon. And Aegon, over the, the last three months of this year, but a whole host of financial well-being um, stuff they want to promote to their to their customers and it's proper financial well-being they're getting a lot of content from us we're working with them and they're really genuinely behind it however there are also quite a lot of companies that are going financial well-being is a cool thing let's slap that on our marketing and carry on doing the same old crap we've been doing for years that's what we want to call out that's where that how do you know that a financial advisor is genuinely delivering financial well-being and not just putting it on their marketing that's why that question was such a key question excellent well thanks for that and, and it's also worth saying that uh, i can't remember the exact figure but i know that, uh, that that this podcast is listened to by an awful lot of people your book i believe has sold an awful lot of copies and it's also worth mentioning that every all the proceeds from the sale of the financial well-being book go to the uh, Broad cancer research institute so um let's keep up the good work and we look forward to you joining us again next time when we come up with another one of our podcasts to discuss the whole notion of financial well-being. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>